Those of you who have tried to lose weight and nothing seems to work, new research has indicated what the source of the problem may be: excessive fat storage in the liver. It's the liver's job to regulate fat metabolism, as it's the major fat-burning organ in the body. But with all the fat in today's diet, the liver can become too full of fat. This buildup causes the liver to store fat instead of burning it. That's why Livotropics was developed. Livotropics is an all-natural formula that uses lipotropic technology to assist the liver in burning fat. Look it up in the dictionary. Lipotropic is defined as a substance that removes excessive fat stored in the liver. Livotropics is the premier lipotropic formula. Livotropics revs up your fat-burning engine, activating your metabolism to help you shed those extra pounds. It's a 100% soy-based and natural lipotropic formula. Help your liver burn fat today with Livotropics. Go to naturalfatburning.com to experience Livotropics. Remember when you laughed during a business conference? You felt more energized, more alert, and more receptive to the message being delivered. Hi, I'm Russ Dahlnack, and I make people laugh. And as a professional humorous speaker, I open up a morning conference session with a laugh or close off the day with a funny recap. It's it's just a one-of-a-kind experience. Visit RussIsFunny.com right now. Get an audience into it. You know, if they're laughing, it's paying big dividends. They're more relaxed. They're more creative. And if nothing else, a humorous speaker leaves each and every one of them with a smile on their face. You need comedy. Custom, clean, clever comedy. Otherwise, the audience might just doze off. <laughs> just imagine, if you had to listen to hours of serious commentary without a break, come on, pack some upbeat energy into your next event. Humor works. Find me, Russ Dahlnack, at RussIsFunny.com because, well, RussIsChubby.com was taken. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. To reach a show host or guest during the live show, dial toll-free in North America, 866-613-1612. Or, if outside the USA and Canada, dial 001-858-268-3068. to Civil War Talk Radio. Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from the largely deserted campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, on a May-Friday afternoon when summer session has just begun, but nobody has a Friday afternoon class in the summer. So it's quiet here and appropriate for us to sit and talk a bit about Civil War history. When you listen to this, of course, it may not be Friday. It uh, may not be uh, summer, for that matter. And certainly it would not be North Carolina. We do have listeners uh, from all around the world, as I discover from email, received a very interesting 
uh, friendly comment from Civil War enthusiast in Hawaii, uh, another one from the UK, you know, both in the last week. And uh, then just a few days ago, uh, one from England from a, uh, a five X-ray uh, working at the Joint Services Command and Staff College. And we'll find out from our guest today just what that means. Uh, so let's, let's go ahead and do that. Uh, we're talking today with Brigadier General Harold Nelson, retired uh, former Chief of Military History of the U.S. Army. Hal, are you there? I am indeed. Hi, Jerry. How are you doing? Great. Look forward to this opportunity to talk. Well, glad glad to have you on. You and I haven't had a chance to talk too much recently, but we, we've had a chance to do some interesting things together in the past, and so it's always good to get together. Um, let me start at the top. You were uh, the, the chief of military history for the Army at one time. Is that correct? Yes, from uh, 1989 to 1994. And uh, I, I that actually overlapped with my graduate school time because I remember the uh, – Office of Military History supported my research into uh, the Army of the Ohio with a generous grant during your uh, your command there. So I'm I'm grateful for that. that we did lots of wise things for which I take credit, but probably had very little to do with at the time. So right. thank you. Well, it, it was it was certainly something a penurious graduate student was very <laughs> happy to get and help help the research go forward. I'm sure many other uh, students are in the same position of receiving that kind of support. Well, but few actually carried it through not only to a dissertation but a fine book. So I think it was a good little investment in a very big and fruitful project. Well, well thank you. It's nice, nice of you to say that as well. So uh, other than supporting uh, projects in their infancy, what, what does the Chief of Military History do? Tell our listeners. Well, you just uh, mentioned that five x-ray off in the United Kingdom. Uh, that's an additional skill indicator for historians who happen to be uniformed officers in the Army. And so a uh, large part of what the Chief of Military History does is uh, provide guidance and, and policy for that program, uh, but at the same time produce materials, uh, books, uh, various short monographs, uh, graphic materials, that are useful not only to those more serious students of military history within the Army, but uh, to the Army school system, starting with ROTC and the service academy and on through the uh, education of general officers. So a large part of it is uh, a publication effort. Another part is uh, the museum program. Uh, Many of your listeners are close to a military post, and they've been to a a museum of some sort, either a unit or a facility museum, and uh, the policy for all of those is uh, a product of the Center of Military History, which also has responsibility for the preservation of artifacts and art owned by the Army. So it's a fairly uh, broad-gauge uh, functional interest. I mean, it, it, people don't realize sometimes how much, the, how much history the Army preserves uh, the uh, what, what about uh, Carlisle? Is that yeah? Carlisle Barracks is uh, of course I retired from uh, a visiting professorship at Carlisle Barracks after I was chief of military history. Carlisle Barracks is the home of the Army War College and also the uh, Army's Military History Institute, which is primarily a repository of uh, published and manuscript items uh, having to do with the history of the U.S. Army. And that, too, uh, comes under the policy uh, supervision of the Chief of Military History. Right now at Carl Barracks, they've just moved into a new uh, facility uh, built by uh, 
the taxpayers with appropriated money, and they're in the midst of uh, forming a public-private partnership to build a large uh, education center so that they can do a better job of outreach to the American public because uh, the other part of it, illustrated by the museums but also by the Military History Institute, is to make the history of the Army available to the American people. And, of course, the publications that I talked of earlier are available through the government printing office or in most big uh, libraries, but seldom encountered in uh, bookstores. And there are some obvious, uh, some wonderful things there. I think most of our listeners probably have seen the, like the green World War II volumes. Yes, um, those are, are well known. But again, yes. uh, you don't normally see those in bookstores. No, but anybody who gets to a university library or to a large uh, municipal library will encounter some or all of that set. And uh, less well known are the documentary collections from World War One. And, of course, since uh, your topic is the Civil War, the current Center of Military History of the Army grew out of the efforts after the Civil War to publish uh, the official records. That project had begun back in the late 19th century and was paralleled by a project after the Spanish-American War and again after World War One. And so one of the things the modern Center of Military History has done for the later wars is to make sure that that stuff was brought back into print. And, of course, meanwhile, the official records from uh, the War of the Rebellion have been put onto CD, and so the government followed that commercial lead and has done the same thing with the records of uh, World War I. That, uh, the, the CD version of the, the, the official records is just indispensable to anybody doing research in, in the field. Yes, it is. And, and you think of the, the difference if you wanted to look up uh, an individual's name, you could always go to the old index, but it had its quirks. It did. <laughs> the, old, uh, the old index was uh, never truly uh, thought to be authoritative. And it no. It didn't deserve that name. But now to do a word search and you want to find out... Uh, uh, you know any any individual or any concept, any name, any place name, and to to be able to have them all at your fingertips is it's really a, a, an incredible advance. Yes, it really. I, is. I'm delighted to hear about Carlisle moving forward with the. Uh... Yes, uh, the initial uh, facility had been the uh, the uh, college building in the 1950s, and before that, it had been a, a World War II era effort at having a an academic facility. It was never designed to be an archive, and the storage conditions uh, and research conditions were uh, way below standard. So now it's a good, properly humidity and uh, light-controlled storage area, closed-stack library, much better security, and, of course, a real reading room with uh, proper computer terminals and everything you need to access the collection. And by the way, uh, anyone who's uh, doing research online uh, can go to uh, Carlisle Barracks very easily um, through its website and uh, not only find uh, access to to the catalogs and the specialized uh, research catalogs, but also uh, to a few documents that have been digitized. And the Army at the Center of Military History also uh, runs an excellent uh, website, and they have digitized a lot of materials uh, in Army history, not so much for the Civil War, 
but uh, for the later periods, and uh, those are all accessible to the public through the websites. And, and the, the, certainly the collection at Carla Barracks, I have not been to the new reading room, but the old one, uh, yeah. the, the collection more than makes up for any shortcomings and comfort. Uh, if you're going to write about the Civil <laughs> That's War, you've right. got to go there. Uh, there's just wonderful material there. So the so the army runs this wide web of both historical sites and historians we mentioned uh, uh the five x-ray specialty uh, the the army employs a fair number of historians i gather yes uh the uh, the military academy uh is the main uh source of uh, money you might say to allow army officers to go to graduate school and uh, receive an advanced degree, a master's degree, so that they can spend a few years on the faculty at West Point, both as teacher and role model, before moving on to do other things in the Army. But frankly, that's a pretty expensive program. So uh, for many years now, those uh, military officers with, uh, you might say, beginning credentials, have been supplemented by civilians hired by the government uh, to teach history. So the military academy has an ever-increasing percentage of uh, civilian professors. And then places like the uh, Staff College at Fort Leavenworth is largely dependent upon uh, civilian uh, historians who have been hired by the Army. And the same is true at the War College. While I taught there as a colonel on active duty, uh, that position has now been civilianized. With the continuing war on terror, there's been a recognition that there's a fairly big saving in military manpower by civilianizing the positions. And at the center of military history itself, and as historians for the various large commands around the Army, the tradition had been uh, virtually throughout the Cold War that the vast majority of those positions were held by uh, civilians with advanced degrees hired by the military as civil servants, either under the old GS scale and, or under Title X. What was your own career path? Uh, tell our listeners how... Yes, uh, I graduated from the Military Academy in 1963, and... Uh, as a result, I was one of the people who was fairly early into the Vietnam War, and as a retention move, the Army offered me uh, graduate school at the University of Michigan in 1968, followed by a tour teaching at West Point. Uh, and at that time, I was a European uh, historian with uh, primary uh, emphasis on uh, revolution and Russian history. And then I went to uh, Korea after going to the Staff College and then came back to teach at the Staff College at Fort Leavenworth, teaching history and strategy. And then I went to, while I was there, I was able to finish my Ph.D. at Michigan. And then um, went to work as a defense analyst in the uh, office of the American ambassador to NATO before commanding a battalion in Germany and then joining the faculty and being a student at the War College before becoming the Chief of Military History. So you represent the, the, the soldier-scholar ideal in a way that you suggest is not, not so common any longer. Well, I'm not so sure. Uh, it was not very common in my day either. Uh, and there are still young people coming up who are commanding brigades now, 
who uh, look a lot like I did when I was teaching at the War College, people who have published their dissertations and have taught quite a bit. So uh, it was fairly rare even when I was on that track. It was a rather grass-covered track. Uh, and uh, I'm pleased to hear about the University of Michigan in of your background. I, I teasingly try to mention to our listeners that I have a Harvard degree at every opportunity, but uh, my heart is actually in Ann Arbor uh, as a Wolverine undergraduate. That's my real exactly uh, football loyalty there. Exactly. Well, mine too, since I had that West Point undergraduate. If you had a choice, who would you be rooting for, West Point or Michigan? Ah, <laughs> there's a choice to make. Yeah. Now, um, you mentioned the War College, where you said you, you both studied and, and taught there, and I'm looking here at the U.S. Army War College Guide to the Battle of Gettysburg yeah. that you and Jay, Jay Lubas prepared. Uh, yeah. How did that project come about? Tell us about well, it. Well, uh, basically, uh, Jay and I had both been together at West Point. He was the first civilian visiting professor at West Point when I was finishing up my tour there on the faculty. And I was uh, in charge of the honors program for uh, young cadets in, in history, and uh, Jay, of course, was one of the people I tried to lure to take as many cadet projects as I could because of his uh, tremendous teaching skills and his uh, academic background. So anyway, we got to know each other well. And Jay was at that time a professor at Allegheny College in Meadville, Pennsylvania, and was taking his students uh, now and then to Civil War battlefields. And I had some experience of tromping battlefields, not so much Civil War as World War One and World War Two. And so by the time I joined the faculty at the War College, Jay was once again a visiting professor, but now with the intention that we would hire him away from uh, Allegheny, which we did. And so he became a full-time civilian professor of the type I've earlier described. And he and I became colleagues and began... Uh, running uh, battlefield trips uh, for our war college students. But more important, we began to develop techniques to take young people, ROTC cadets, around battlefields, because I had a real concern by this time it was 1982-83 along in there. And uh, young officers were coming out into an army uh, where even their battalion commander probably had never been shot at. And so it was getting to be a long time since we'd had practical discussions on a battlefield uh, about uh, decisions under fire. Now, that's no longer an issue uh, for today's Army since uh, they get plenty of practical experience uh, on almost every rotation. But at that time, it, it was a concern. So we began putting together these uh, staff rides for young officers, similar to what Jay had done with undergraduates and I had done for people working for me around the Army. So at any rate, uh, one of our students then told the Secretary of the Army about that. He was interested in taking senior civilian leaders who had no combat experience out on battlefields, and so there was a natural match between what we were doing for young people and what he was trying to do for, say, Assistant Secretaries of the Army. And uh, that was uh, Mr. John O. Marsh, who had been a National Guard officer as well as a congressman from Virginia before he became Secretary of the Army. Wonderful man, who I had met a bit when I had been teaching out of Leavenworth back in the 70s. And so again, things really clicked, and we took a group of his uh, senior executives uh, to Gettysburg with his careful supervision. 
and inspiring leadership. And in the course of doing that, he had the general counsel of the Army tell us that our notebooks that we were using to take people around the battlefield could and should be published. And so we went to a uh, local uh, bookstore that we had been frequenting, and that fellow, John Common, actually started a publishing house, which published the first edition. We gave the manuscripts to a foundation, so there was no conflict of interest. And uh, now those uh, titles all are University Press of Kansas. And the series continues, but it all grew out of uh, those roots uh, a little over 20 years ago. Well, we're going to take a short break, and we're going to come back and talk more with our guest today, General Hal Nelson, former Chief of Military History of the U.S. Army and uh, co-editor of the U.S. Army War College Battlefield Guide series. We'll return in just a moment to discuss those further on Civil War Talk Radio. Mm-hmm. 